Good morning, St. Mary's. I'm so sorry I can't be with you this morning, but as you've heard, I've tested positive for COVID. Praise God that I'm not feeling too awful at the moment. I want you to picture the scene. It's the latest Hollywood romantic comedy, and the camera pans to a christening in church. The family are all there, and Rowan Atkinson is the rather inexperienced curate who doesn't quite know what he's doing. Between you and me, I identify with him quite a lot. The eight-day-old baby boy is brought to him, and as the baby is handed to him, he asks what name is to be given to the child. Zechariah, the uncles and aunts all shout. That's the name of the boy's rather elderly father, so it is an obvious choice because clearly the father's not going to be around for much longer. So, Zach Jr. it is. The curate is about to christen the boy, Zechariah, when the boy's equally elderly mother suddenly remembers something an angel had told her husband. No, no, she says, he's to be called John. Rowan Atkinson goes into a panic, his eyes darting between the mother and the rest of the family, who point out that John is a crazy choice. It's never been a family name. What does the curate do? It sounds like one of those trick questions I get as part of my vicar training. It's about to end in fisticuffs between the relatives, when suddenly the boy's father who's been having a bit of a doze on the front row of pews because, as I say, he's getting on a bit, and he hasn't actually said a word in nine months, suddenly he wakes up. Let's ask his father, they say. He still can't talk, so he asks for a tablet. They give him an aspirin, but he doesn't mean that kind of tablet. So they give him an iPad. As you may have guessed, this is a slightly modern version of the story. He takes the iPad and he writes on it emphatically, his name is John. In fact, in the original Greek, the language is even stronger. John is his name. So the matter is settled. Rowan Atkinson christens the boy John. At which point his father, Zechariah, suddenly finds his voice again and he launches into a joyful song to celebrate. This scene, updated and adapted a little bit, it was after all a circumcision, not a christening, is the context for our reading today. It's a family party. An elderly couple have been blessed with a child against all the odds. And there is a spat over the boy's name. It's the final scene in Luke's wonderful opening chapter, the one that we've been studying over these last few weeks. And this long chapter, 80 verses, is like an extended musical overture, a medley of tunes that prepares us for the gospel symphony that follows in the rest of Luke and indeed in Luke's sequel, The Acts of the Apostles. The signature tune, if you like, is God's salvation, not just for Israel, but for all who believe through Jesus. And Luke uses this language of salvation here in his gospel and in Acts more than any other gospel writer. If we fast forward to Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, what does Peter tell the Sanhedrin about Jesus? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Sometimes the salvation imagery is buried just below the surface, and we have to look a bit harder to find it. 
Even this crazy naming scene at the circumcision has a narrative purpose. Luke has a reason for including it. You see, the family want to call the child Zechariah, which means the Lord has remembered. It's a good name. It's it's a family name. But, of course, if all the Lord does is remember, then what he will remember is our disobedience. Not so good for us. The angel told Zechariah that the child's name was to be John, not Zechariah. And what does John mean? It means God is gracious. John's role later in life, as Zechariah sings here in our passage, is to point people to Jesus, the ultimate sign of God's grace and salvation. You see, for Luke, even the names matter. But let's step back a bit and ask ourselves three questions about this passage. The first is this, what has happened to Zechariah? Because something amazing has happened to him. If you remember, he started this chapter as a crotchety old priest, without any children, doing his duty in the temple. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were good people, but otherwise unremarkable. The angel Gabriel comes to him and says his wife is going to have a baby. Ah, I don't believe it, Zechariah says, in effect. So the angel strikes him dumb for nine months. A long time to reflect on his lack of faith. You see, this is the Zechariah that we see right at the beginning of Luke chapter 1. But shoot forward to the end of Luke chapter 1 and we see a Zechariah who is completely transformed. Not only is he blessed with a baby boy, but he's also got his voice back. And and more than that, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts to prophesy. He sings this beautiful song of thanksgiving known as the Benedictus. This Zechariah at the end of chapter one is unrecognisable from the Zechariah at the start of chapter one. So what has happened? Well, it's simple. He has been transformed by Jesus. In fact, he says as much right at the beginning of his song, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. In fact, the word come here is a bit feeble. The original Greek conveys much more a sense of visiting with a blessing. God has visited his people to bless them, to save them, to redeem them. And Zechariah develops this salvation theme in the next verse, verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, a horn is a symbol of power and strength. And in the Old Testament, the phrase horn of salvation is only ever applied to God. Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So we see that what has miraculously transformed Zechariah from an elderly Jobsworth cleric to a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit and singing God's praises is the revelation that God has visited his people to redeem them, to raise up a horn of salvation for them. Now, at this point, you might say, well, hang on, Jeremy. Zechariah is speaking as if these things have already happened. God has come to his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation and so on. These are all in the past tense and yet Jesus, John's cousin, has not even been born yet. 
The ultimate act of redemption and salvation, the cross of Calvary, won't happen for another 33 years or so. So what is going on here? Well, what we see here is something called the prophetic past tense, a way of talking about future events that are so certain to happen, so certain of being fulfilled that they are spoken of in the past tense, as if they have already happened. Now, if that's a difficult concept to grasp, don't worry. Just think about this. Just over 80 years ago this month, on the 7th of December, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. It meant that America would finally enter the war. And when Winston Churchill heard of this attack, he's reported to have said, Ah, so we won. And of course, we hadn't won at that point. There were another three and a half years of war to go. But Churchill knew that with the might of America on the side of the Allies, victory would ultimately be theirs. Victory was now so certain that Churchill spoke as if it had already happened. And so it is with Zechariah. Filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and prophesying like an Old Testament prophet, he knew in his heart that God had visited his people And he spoke of a redemption and salvation that was so certain, so definitive, it was effectively a done deal, a past event, a certainty. So we see a Zechariah who is completely transformed, not so much by the birth of his own son, though that was great news indeed, but rather he's transformed by the revelation that there is an even greater birth to come, the birth of the Messiah, a birth which signifies The wonderful truth, verse 68, that the Lord God of Israel has come to his people and redeemed them. But then we come to our our second question about this passage. All this talk in Luke of salvation and, and redemption and rescue, it's fine, but what are we actually being rescued from? Zechariah's song prophesies about our being saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's in verse 71. Now we have to ask ourselves, how would the Israelites have heard this prophecy? You see, for them, the enemies were the Romans who occupied their country. The Israelites' dream, their heartfelt desire, was that Israel would be delivered from this oppressive occupation and that the promised Messiah, the King of David, would reign over a liberated Israel. The Israelites would have heard Zechariah's wonderful prophecy, primarily in terms of national liberation. And this continued to be their hope, their dream, even after Jesus was born, even after he began his ministry. Even after his resurrection, his disciples asked him, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because for the Israelites, that's what the Messiah was supposed to do. But we now know that God had even bigger plans than that. Remember, the salvation of which Luke writes is not just for Israel. It is for all who believe. It is for you and for me. And there's more uh, than a, a hint of this, of this wider divine plan in Zechariah's beautiful song. After praising God for his visitation, his coming into the world, his great rescue mission, Zechariah finally gets round, verses 76 to 79, to talking about his own son, John, and the role that he, John, is to play in relation to this coming Messiah. 
verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And this, of course, is itself a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 talks about a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And how will John prepare the way? Well, again, the answer is in Zechariah's song. John will point to a Messiah who brings forgiveness for sins, verse 77. A Messiah who will be like the rising sun, shining on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's the first part of verse 79. A Messiah who will guide our feet into the path of peace, the second part of verse 79. So we begin to see what this divine act of salvation, this heavenly visitation really means. It means forgiveness for our sins, light in the darkness, hope for those of us in the shadow of death, a guide through the windy and dangerous maze of life. So this is so much more than liberation from Roman occupation and the restoration of ethnic Israel. It's about forgiveness for our sins and deliverance from our ultimate enemy, who of course is the devil. The devil who leads us into the very sin which separates us from God. As Peter puts it in his first letter, Be alert and be sober of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We are rightly preoccupied right now with a deadly disease at the moment. But the deadliest disease, what is that? It's our sinfulness and the work of the devil in the world. And Jesus comes into the world to rescue us from that threat. How? through the forgiveness of our sins. As John put it in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So now we come to the third question about this passage, and it's the big one. The real issue is not how Zechariah's family reacted to this ding-dong battle about the naming of a child with Rowan Atkinson cowering in between the warring factions. The John Camp one lets get over it and move on. Nor is it about how the Israelites heard Zechariah's prophecy with this apparent promise of national liberation. No, the circle goes much wider. It's about you and about me. What is our response to this great rescue mission? How do we today in Chesham, in 2021, how do we respond to Zechariah's song, his prophecy with its certain promise of salvation? through the forgiveness of sins, light in the darkness, a lamp to our feet. Will we be transformed as Zechariah was transformed? Well, Zechariah tells us what our response should be. He tells us the whole point of God's visitation, God's coming into the world. And it's in verses 74 to 75. Jesus comes to rescue us from our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We come back to fear. That has been the whole point of this sermon series in Advent. But fear not. And we don't need to fear because we have been redeemed at a cost. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been rescued from the hands of our enemy, the devil. And our thankfulness for this wonderful act of divine mercy cannot but lead us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. Not just for a week, not just for a month, not just for Christmas, but for the whole of our days.
One of my favourite carols at this time of year is in the bleak midwinter, which of course is based on a poem by Christina Rossetti. The final verse sums up for me, anyway, the choice that we face when presented with Zechariah's great prophecy, when presented with the Christ child and the wonderful rescue mission that he represents. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. As we get ready for Christmas in six days' time, may we truly yield our hearts to him, Jesus our Saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful prayer in Luke's Gospel of Zechariah. We join with him in thanking you for sending this great rescue mission. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Help us to respond to him with open hearts. Respond to his gift of salvation. Lord, that we might serve him in righteousness and holiness for all our days. Amen.